Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Um, it is November the 15th, 2021. I'm talking to you from a rather autumnal San Francisco, a little bit chilly this morning. It's 8 a.m. in the morning, so perhaps it will warm up. I hope I will help you all warm up intellectually at least this morning. Uh, we need some warming up, I think, in America. Things are rather dire, or at least they appear dire if you read the dominant newspapers. Uh, Steve Bannon, one of Trump's people, has become the pinup for. I guess, authoritarianism, chic authoritarianism in contemporary America. Um, he, according to the New York Times, turned himself in in contempt of Congress charges over the investigation of January 6th. Democracy, though, does appear in crisis here. Uh, the Times also reports the Republicans are gaining heavy house edge in 2022 as the gerrymandered maps emerge. Uh, in other words, um, the Republicans and probably the Democrats are, are, um, are cheating when it comes to democracy. Um, the Post, the Washington Post, reports that uh, a newly disclosed memo reveals Donald Trump's plot uh, to turn, and I'm quoting the, uh, the Post here, to turn the military into his personal goon squad. In other words, Trump was preparing the military, uh, or at least America, for a military coup, uh, which didn't happen. Uh, America is also trying to confront itself, both from left and right. It's various crimes against minorities, particularly uh, the indigenous, indigenous Americans and African-American uh, peoples. Uh, and I thought it was a good time today to talk about Democracy, not democracy in America, but democracy over the ages. Uh, my guest today uh, is the author of many books, including Democracy of a Life. Uh, his name is Paul Cartledge. He's not an expert on democracy. He's one of the world's leading authorities uh, on ancient Greece, on antiquity. And I'm thrilled that he's joining us uh, from his home in uh, Cambridge, uh, England, where he also is associated with the university. Paul, welcome. Um, I'm presenting you in part as an authority on democracy. You're the author of many books. Your latest book is on Thebes, but you're also the author of Democracy, A Life. When you look across the Atlantic at the moment, Paul, uh, is it business as usual when it comes to democracy? Or is Donald Trump taking, um, taking some lessons from uh, the military despots who destroyed democracy in antiquity. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Uh, I love San Francisco. Haven't been there for a while, but I remember your weather all too well. And happily, it's not 8 a.m. here, but it is 4 p.m. in the afternoon. So is there an analogy between what Trump's doing um, within or against American constitutional democracy and whatever went on in the ancient Greek world where Athens invented both the name and the institution that went to democracy then. I think not for two reasons, really. The first reason is we're talking 
talking about two very, very different of democracy. And one of the points of my book, I am a comparative historian. I believe comparativism is what brings out what is specific to the particular culture or society or political economy that you're studying in a way that no other method of history does. The ancients practiced Partly they had no choice but to practice. Partly they wanted to practice only direct democracy. So if you're going to rule, if you're a citizen and you're empowered and voting is by majority rule of those turning up on the day, then obviously this is very, very different from a system which only every so often, maybe twice in four years, if you're talking about midterms, uh, or once every four years, if you're talking about your presidential elections, then you cast a vote and you feel for that day that you are empowered and that you're really a citizen of your polity. But in the ancient world, you lived, breathed, ate, drank, slept politics, which is, of course, a Greek word in origin. And democratia, the word, means people power. And so unless the people collectively in some embodiment that is physically present and self-physically present in the single space, there is no people as a pure abstraction in the way for the most part, despite what Lincoln said about your incipient democracy in 1863, actually modern democracies are representative. And there's a world of difference um, psychologically as well as, as well as physiologically and symptomatically and symbolically between a direct democracy and a representative one. So to come to your question about Trump, Trump is able to function at a distance, partly because American democratic politics is not a matter of the people, all of them, those who are empowered citizens to vote, being president at any one space at any one time. And he's therefore able to use all sorts of other mechanisms than physical present intervention to garner support, to generate support, to sow, let's be honest, confusion and hatred through, frankly, lies. But could he do that had there not been the amazing technological uh, new information revolution of the late 19th, you know, the late 20th and early 21st century. No. Could he do it were your American system more finely tuned to prevent such persons as he gaining extraordinary power? In other words, there aren't quite the checks and balances today that the founding fathers thought were adequate in 1776 and following. Today in 2021, we need something more, a more independent Supreme Court, diminish the power of the Electoral College. I could go on, but you know what I'm saying. I do know what you're saying, Paul, and um, I hope you do go on because you're bringing some real wisdom to this conversation, which tends to, um, it to, tends to devolve, I'm afraid, into cliches. You're the author of many books, um, the Democracy book, the latest book on Thebes, also an interesting book. I haven't read it, but I, I found it, Ancient Greece, a history in 11 cities. 
Um, in your presentation of democracy as an urban physical phenomenon, one revolving around the polis, which I, I'm guessing was best articulated by Aristotle, do you have to have cities? Is cities essential? Was there quote-unquote Greek-style democracy or Athenian democracy outside Greek cities? Um, well, now that's a very interesting question. Depends what you define as democracy. For example, if we're looking comparatively in the ancient world, let's just look at Rome. In one sense, it was a city-state, that is an individual, not a territorial entity, but a city that was also a polity. So think Singapore today and yet which isn't, which isn't a democracy of course or is no. best a quasi-democracy a technocracy you're very nicely put but i'm thinking in terms of its um institutional structure the romans took their decisions in terms of what um you know on the face of it what is the latin for people it's populus populus romanus the people of rome the citizen body of rome they signed off as it were by vote electorally and legislatively but there were all sorts of ways in which the Roman elite, by which I mean the, the oligarchy, the, the powerful, the rich, the aristocratic, were able to keep the masses out. And so whereas Rome masquerades as a populist system or a popular system, it's de facto and to some degree de jure, in other words, legally, a, a, a an oligarchy. Whereas Athens, now you asked whether it was essential for it to be an urban space. Yes, there has to be a centre where the citizens foregather in an assembly that is legally constituted and empowered to take the relevant both legislative and electoral votes. But most Athenian citizens are surprised. And there were about, let's say, 50,000 of them in the late 5th century, the time of Pericles, the time of Thucydides, the time of Plato, about 50,000 adult male empowered citizens aged 20 plus who were free, legitimate, and they had been properly entered on the citizen register, etc., etc. They had the vote. Well, that's, um, by our standards, absolutely tiny. But nevertheless, small enough of those um, typically six to ten thousand would regularly participate and they had to come together in the center but most of those fifty thousand lived outside the urban center of mm. Athens together with its port and that's the case in the whole of the ancient world if you imagine we today live in a world where i believe the majority of today's citizens or if you like inhabitants inhabit something that can be called a city. In the ancient world, something like 80 to 90% plus were basically farmers or in some way involved directly in agriculture, not in manufacture, not in trade and exchange, not in international or translocal uh, economic uh, transactions. So even Athens, by our standards, was would count as relatively moderately urbanized. Uh, we began with a reference to these 
gerrymandered maps emerging in America, there seems to be an increasingly self-evident breakdown between liberal, tolerant urban centers and the countryside, which tends to be more traditional. Did you have the same divisions in Greece? I yeah, mean, broadly speaking, that's a very good point. I mean, one of our contemporary sources, he's also contemporary with Pericles and with Plato and all those great names. I mean, Athens, rather like Florence in the Renaissance, concentrated, somehow produced a plethora of geniuses in different fields, science, philosophy, politics, theatre. Well, my example is of the theatre, and he's called Aristophanes in modern Greek, Aristophanes, and he was a comic playwright. And he played on the country and town social distinction. And the word rustic, which comes from the Latin, is opposed in Latin to urbane. And so rustics are rustic, and they're not terribly sophisticated. And urbanites are urbane, we're terribly smart, and uh, what have you. Well, that was a kind of joke but the fact was that most Athenians were rustic. So it's not a joke that actually plays out in practice because most decisions would have a very strong component of non-urban, you know, rustic Athenian input. Not all sophisticates though, of course, Paul, are pro-democracy. You mentioned the greats in Athens. We all know about Socrates and Plato. And my sense, and this is very much as an amateur, is that Socrates liked democracy and lived the life of the polis, whereas Plato was much warier and, of course, articulated um, a more technocratic vision, which is perhaps best articulated in, in, in the Republic. Um, were there a lot of people, sophisticates, intellectuals like Plato, who rejected the idea of democracy as being inefficient or... Um, or, or failing to realize the potential of Athens? You put your finger on a very important point that if you are an intellectual, you're literate, you've been probably formally well-educated, and you may even want to rush into their equivalent of print, which is, of course, having your text transcribed on papyrus by hand, and it would take a very long time, and it would involve probably the use of manual labor by literate slaves who would be doing the copying. So by definition, intellectuals were a tiny, tiny minority of the total population. However, your point stands in this regard, that most of the intellectuals who put stylus to wax tablet or papyrus on the issue, should the masses rule or not, most of them said no. Uh, for the reason you gave, the masses, that is ordinary poor, citizens are mainly peasants or poor urban workers of various sorts. They're not well educated. They're not necessarily that smart. And they tend to be more, this is now an intellectual view, um, more open to emotion rather than rational intellectual argument. Now, these are all anti, not just anti um, uh, non-intellectual, but they're anti-democratic arguments because the democrat view was the exact opposite. It's precisely because most Athenians were not 
intellectuals. They were ordinary people who lived the democracy. And they were, now this is where Aristotle is unusual, unlike Plato, who on principle believed, as you said, that technocracy should rule and the technocrats should be the smartest, intellectually the brainiest of all citizens. They should be able to pass certain tests. Yeah, he uh, called them uh, philosopher kings, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Well, kings is a bit of a giveaway. They're the antithesis of a democratic republican system. Aristotle was himself not a democrat in the formal sense. He didn't think the masses should rule. He, on the other hand, identified different sorts, forms, degrees of democracy, some of which to him were less offensive than others. And broadly speaking, the criterion was how much unrestricted power is being given by the system to the majority who are poor and therefore probably quite ignorant, etc., 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 as opposed to how many constraints are there on the unfettered power of the masses who have the vote and who vote by majority decision? And Aristotle said there is something, and it anticipates a modern um, idea, the wisdom of the crowd. So you ask people to contribute their views and you'll get a whole range. And as it were, what will come out in the wash is a sort of average blend that has some elements of extreme this, some elements of extreme that. But the ultimate outcome is probably a moderate blending in the middle somewhere. Aristotle was, of course, fanatic against extremism. Too much of anything was for him bad. I think uh, Aristotle would be appalled then with the current state of America where there is no middle and where people are nostalgic for a middle. Um, what do you make, Paul, of the resurrection of the Greek ideal, the democratic, the, 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 the antiquity, the ideal of citizen assemblies, um, which um, I have another show, How to Fix Democracy. We spent a lot of time thinking about these citizen assemblies, they've been used prominently in Ireland to rethink abortion. And there, it's democracy by lot. It's not uh, representative democracy. Citizens are engaged, they're selected by lot, and then they're involved in, 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 in understanding and legislating or suggesting legislation on complicated, controversial issues like abortion. Is or are citizen assemblies our way back to the democracy of antiquity? Well, I would say yes, but for not just the fact that they are um, peculiarly uh, constituted ad hoc, as opposed to part of the routine mode of self-governance, but because the way of selecting those um, people to judge a particular issue. You mentioned the word by lot. Well, the ancient Athenians, one of the many contributions, theoretical, which transcend their local 5th, 4th century BC context, one of their several contributions, which are applicable, I believe, to the modern world is precisely the notion of the lottery. And the Athenians actually chose most of their official positions, and there was something like 700 um, every year, by the, the method of the random lottery, because that encouraged ordinary people who might not have the 
encourage our allies to stand up, put their name forward, campaign to have their name thrown into the hat, as it were. And secondly, the drawing of the lot was random, so that there would be no correlation between the sort of person you were and whether or not you got selected. That was simply random. And they used that method both for holding of office and for the of judicial office, that is, sitting on a jury, being a member of a popular jury, which was one way of doing politics. We distinguish between the uh, spheres of governmental power, between the legislature, that's who make the decisions, in our case, your case, Congress, our Houses of Parliament, and the people who sit in judgment on the laws as so passed, and that is um, the judiciary. Well, we um, separate them off because we think one should be independent of the other. The Athenians didn't take that view at all. So it was uh, in the assembly on the Pnyx Hill, you vote in a law or a decree. In fact, we made a movie for How to Fix Democracy, and I, 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 I went up to the Acropolis and stood over the Pnyx or the, the, the original Pnyx, where uh, this public space it, it sort of relies on on public space, doesn't it, Paul? That's essential. Absolutely. But just to finish off on the lottery, one notion that um, there are people now advocating for very strongly. Not that, for example, President Trump should be chosen by lot. Not that your senator or your uh, congresswoman should be chosen by lot. But that precisely big issues such as ones that divide people on party lines should be rationally deliberated calmly away from party political pressure. Now, I've used the word party deliberately. The ancient Greeks had no notion of parties with manifestos, with officers, structures, membership, and so no notion of a party line. We use the word in our parliament, whip, that if government decides that a particular measure is so important to the government that every member of that government's party in parliament, so today the Tories, must vote yes. And so that's called whipping. And there's a three-line whip, which is the strict form. If you disobey the party line on that you're running the risk of being not only censured but actually deprived of the whip that is your party leaders will say you no longer temporarily can vote in parliament so in rate, they didn't have the they didn't know the notion of parties which actually i think is quite a good thing yeah it's certainly a good thing for some people um how to fix democracy one piece in the washington post last week suggests move beyond the two-party system, as you're suggesting. Um, Paul, we had, um, I know you're also involved with New York University, one of your colleagues from New York University, David Stasevich, he has a new book out, The Decline and Rise of Democracy, in which he presents an interesting narrative of democracy, not the traditional sort of Western teleology of going from antiquity through the Middle Ages to modernity, but actually suggesting that we should have learned a lot or we have learned a lot and indeed borrowed a lot from, in the American context, indigenous societies. Uh, going back to your book, Democracy, A Life, what's the narrative of that life? Is it a, 
Is it, is it in your view at least, the, the classic young, middle-aged, old narrative of democracy going from antiquity through the Renaissance <clears throat> up before the 18th and 19th century, or is it more complicated than that? It's absolutely not. And actually the subtitle, A Life, was my publisher's choice, not mine. There was a fashion, maybe there still is, for treating an abstract concept, democracy, as if it were an organic being and therefore having, a, as you say, a beginning, a middle and end or an origin, a middle life and a later life. No, it had to be reinvented. And as I say, modern, that is post-Renaissance and post more particularly early modern, that is 18th century, and democracy of the 19th and 20th, 21st century is something quite other. It's a different beast, if I can put it that way, from what the ancient understood by democracy. So the, the book you mentioned, which I confess I've not yet read myself, if I think you... I find it quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, the well, and Rise of Democracy by David Sassavage, and he's been on this show. Well, if he is arguing that there are different democracies and that um, they become uh, functional in different spaces, different times, for different reasons, for cultural as well as purely institutional political reasons, then I'm all with him. But you mentioned, I believe, something like native communities, indigenous communities. I, in my book, start out, um, others will think this active they will think it is exclusionary, that it is too narrow. But I take a very, very strong definition of democracy, basing myself on its origins in Athens and its theorization by Aristotle to mean power. It's not enough if, let's say, a hereditary tribal chief consults with the people of his community and, as it were, listens them but in fact he has total authority very often defended and um, invoked in terms of divine superhuman authorization that to me is something radically other than people power human people having the final say so um I start out by having a little bit of a debate with Amartya Sen and with some Australian exponents of democracy, uh, democratic theory, who wish to so broaden the term democracy as to involve and include any per popular, any involvement in um, the political process by anyone other than a hereditary chief or an oligarchic um, group of aristocrats. To me, that's far, far too broad. Um, Paul, last week I had an American congressman, Ruben Gallego. He's a congressman from the 7th District of Arizona uh, on the show. Very articulate and very angry man. He fought in Iraq and he just wrote a book about the catastrophe of the war of Iraq, and I think suggested it has essentially undermined American democracy. You can't talk about democracy in antiquity, of course, without talking about war, militarism. You've written a number of books about that as well. You've written many books after Thermopylae, uh, which in part is about uh, war or the end of wars. What is the relationship between democracy and war? Can militarism hinder or help? 
the emergence of democracy, particularly in antiquity, but over history as well. Yeah, it does both. You you put on the screen a book which is about the early fifth century, and yes, it was absolutely critical that Athens, when fighting in that uh, conflict against Persian invasion, the way they presented what was at stake in the war was to them as Democrats, a fight, not just for their lives and independence, but for their political system of democracy, which was then relatively new. However, they were in league with and could not have won without in league with Sparta. And Sparta was, if you like, anything but a democracy. And it rather despised democracy that the Athenian way of doing politics was at all sensible it was a military society it was therefore hierarchical and top down so you have a system or you have a temporary alliance between two very different kinds of political organization after the war that joint resistance to the obviously autocratic monarchic Persian Empire ruled over by king emperors, you have the two states, the two main Greek resistors, Sparta and Athens, going not just in different directions, but eventually head to head. And Athens's principal uh, military arm was the exact opposite of Sparta. Sparta was brilliant on land, and they had a very, very poor, very small, very poor navy. Athens had a cavalry, it had an infantry, they weren't bad, and there were quite a lot of them, but most Athenians, when they went to war under Athenian colours, from the 480s onwards, they fought as sailors. So they were either rowing or they were marines on a ship. And the interesting point of the connection between the nature of the development of the Athenian democracy and war is that precisely because most Athenians who rowed the ships were the precise same people who were the majority of the democratic citizens who liked having democracy. There was a symbiosis between the development of Athens as a naval and imperial power and Athens as a democracy. Now, if I were talking to Ruben Gallego and he was talking about uh, Iraq, I would say there is a direct parallel with the way the Athenians, at war already with Sparta, this is the major conflict uh, described, analysed by Thucydides, Athenian, not a Democrat, by the way, he's one of these intellectual Athenians who's not a Democrat, uh, very patriotic Athenian. And in 415, the Athenians decided in a classically democratic, populist, emotional way to send a major, major expedition, a fleet, to do something in Sicily. On the one hand, aid an ally which had called them in against one of its local enemies, but more particularly to enhance its own overseas power and wealth with a view to that helping them beat the Spartans in their major conflict in the East Mediterranean. That Sicilian expedition took two years 
utter disaster, Athens lost. The direct consequence was that Athens lost its democracy, not once, but three times in the next seven to 10 years, and was actually defeated by the Spartans, who then imposed what they preferred, which is a narrow, the Greek word is dynasty, dynasty in American, uh, a small bunch, uh, a junta in Spanish, of extreme anti-democrats who were very pro-Spartan. The Athenians recovered, but um, that was quite a warning to don't undertake um, overseas imperialist adventures without being very careful that you know in advance pretty much what the conditions are that you're going to find yourselves having to fight under. Yeah, I think too much is, uh, in terms of the current crisis of American democracy, too much focuses on Trump, not enough on the Iraq war. Uh, there's even a term for this love of star of Sparta, which sounds uh, laconophilia. Uh, you can't be a laconophiliac, I assume, Paul, and a Democrat at the same time. Sparta, yeah. by definition, is anti-democratic. Uh, Paul, finally, uh, it's a wonderful conversation. It's so good to have such an erudite man on who knows this stuff uh, as well as anyone. Um, excuse me, you... Um, you're also the author of, of another book, Ancient Greece, a very short introduction. Um, in short, in very short, Paul, what is the one lesson that the history of antiquity, and particularly of Greece, should give us about reviving, protecting, enriching contemporary democracy? One thing. You know, one thing is culture. I insist that democracy should be not merely an institutional structure. Um, you are registered, you vote, and you're a member of a party or whatever, you're registered as a, a neutral. But that you should think of yourself as a citizen first and foremost in your everyday life. And therefore that from the cradle to the grave, I believe in the old civics education, which um, you abandoned, I believe in the 60s or 70s, we've never had anything like that over here so that people are very ignorant about where their democracy came from, how precious it is, how fragile it is, and how it has to be fought for, but how it has to be in a way loved. Pericles in Thucydides says, fall in love mm -hmm. with your city. That is what I would like all Americans and all British people to do, but only if it's worth falling in love with the object of their desire. So much to talk about falling back in love with our city. Now, we also, I also talked with Gallego about national service, which is part of that. Yeah. Uh, Paul, um, Paul Cartledge, real honor to have you on the show. Your latest book is Thebes. We didn't even get onto that. It's probably the subject of another show. Many other books, including this um, wonderful book on democracy. Uh, you're in Cambridge now, Paul. In addition to all your many books on Thebes, on antiquity, on democracy, what else should people be reading to amuse or enlighten themselves in November 2021. Okay, we're in 2021. This is the 200th anniversary of the rising of some Greeks, aided and abetted, indeed inspired by Greeks outside what is now the boundaries of the nation state of Greece, to rise up against their Turkish conquerors and oppressors, the Ottomans, who had ruled 
Greece since the 1450s. We're talking about 1821, so this is 350 plus years. And they were the first people in the modern world to formulate the notion of an independent state that was a republic. It actually didn't turn out to be a republic, but um, that's what many Greeks fighting against the Ottoman, obviously, Sultan, the monarchist system of an alien religion, wanted to uh, institute. And there is a colleague of mine, and uh, he's called Roderick Beaton. He's retired, as I am, from teaching, a professor at uh, London University, King's College. And his most recent book is called Greece, a Biography of a Nation. And he insists that the liberation movement of the 1820s, aided, of course, by great powers, France and Britain and so on, was not merely a, uh, an independence, a, a nationalist movement, but also a proto-democratic movement. And I would cling on to that. Then we talked, didn't we? Book. Uh, is he a friend of you? We'd love to get him on the show. That, uh, you interestingly were... enough, Paul, um... Mark Mazawa, who teaches history at Columbia University, American historian, um, he has a new book coming out on the Greek um, on the Greek War of Independence, a major book, which I hope to get uh, Mazawa on the show later this month or next month too. So uh, that's uh, I'll, I'll have to get your friend on the show too. You'll will you introduce me? I will, of course, but Mark I know as well, and um, he's been very well received. He is a great, great expert, especially on the originally 20th century Greece. Roddy is more a specialist on the 19th, but he goes right back to the ancient Greeks. So his biography of Greece goes back to antiquity, to prehistory, and comes right down to the present. Then we talked a lot about what I would call the corruption of our, that is both your US and my UK parliamentary democratic systems. And there is an excellent uh, couple of books by an Irish colleague and friend of mine. She's called Roslyn Fuller. And one of her books, she's written in defense of democracy. Well, that's a sort of the correlate, the um, complement to a previous book, which starts out Beasts and gods. And it's all about how extreme wealth is able to distort normal democratic uh, processes in ways that your founding fathers couldn't possibly have anticipated, but yet uh, is merely the modern variant of something which has been going on a, a very long time, that if you pay, if you're allowed to pay, a great deal of money to support a particular party or to support a particular legislator, then you're liable to win. The more money you spend, typically, on average, um, it's the sort of law of averages. You come out on top, and therefore that immediately rules out the ancient Greek notion, which is that democracy is a system which empowers poor people who otherwise would not have any power or status. So I am a great fan of Rosalind's work. We'll have to get Rosalind too. Well, Paul Carlidge, a real honor, wonderful, wonderful privilege to have um, an opportunity to tap your wisdom. Thank you so much. And you have to come back on the show and we'll talk more about Thebes and many other issues in antiquity. Thank you so mm -hmm. much. Let's do that. Thank you, Andrew. Look after yourself. Thanks so much 
for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.